This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hello everyone, welcome to episode 2 of the Not Quite Daily Show, Fall 2017 season, talking about Land of the Lustrous, episode 2. Now I predicted at the end of last episode that our status quo was going to be in immediate peril, but I confess that a snail's digestive juices would not have topped my list of the things that I thought would put everyone in peril. This episode introduced a very interesting character dynamic and left us on our first cliffhanger of the season, and I think it's safe to say that the end of this episode has moved us already out of the introductory phase of this series. So let's get right into how our goals and conflicts changed and all the new things that have been introduced in this episode. This episode opens with a very interesting storybook-like telling of the history of this world. How much of it is literal and how much of it is metaphoric, we'll have to wait to find out. But we'll talk a little more about that when we get to world building. The first part of the real episode feels very much like it's still part of the premiere. We come upon Fos fretting over the promise that she has made towards Cinnabar, and her struggle with the realization that she may have bit off more than she could chew. The way this relates to our goals, it is clear both from the beginning and the end of this episode that Fos's goal of finding a place for Cinnabar has kind of taken preeminence for her. Fos knows she's overmatched in this, and you can hear her toying with the idea of giving it up, but instead of actually giving it up, she spends the episode trying to find help to figure out what to do. Now, she is trying to get other people to do the work for her, or at least the part of helping her figure out how to help herself, so it's not like she's completely a new person, but all the things she does in this episode serve this goal of finding a place for Cinnabar. She doesn't seem all that worried about getting in the fight all of a sudden. She doesn't seem all that worried about making a great discovery. Really, the encyclopedia has become a bit of a bother for her for a totally different reason than originally. Fast forward to the end of the episode, when she's being digested or dissolved by the snail, and her final fleeting thoughts as she starts to, I guess, lose her sense of herself, is that she can't give up, because otherwise, what will happen to Cinnabar? We've definitely gained a lot of clarity about Fos's priorities from this episode. Now to talk about the enemy's goals for a second, the Lunarians ostensibly still want to collect the gems, but in this episode we see them kind of change tactics. Now who knows how long the struggle's been going on, who knows how many times the Lunarians have tried to kidnap them in the manner we've seen so far. It may be that bringing and dumping off that snail is just one in a long list of them changing tactics, but I kind of don't think so. I kind of feel like this is a rather major departure from what they've done in the past. The thing is though, the snail's digestive process, or whatever's going on there, seems to get rid of the gem structure entirely. Now if the Lunarian's goal is to kidnap them because they use them for jewelry, doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose? Two possibilities occur to me here. One is that we've been wrong about their motives all along, and two is that they've actually broadened this into some new scope. They actually have some new goal beyond what we or the gems have seen from them so far. We had new characters introduced this time, and with them some new goals. Daya actually has several little things she wants to change, kind of little mini goals, but I've grouped them all together as just she wants to feel like a true diamond. 
Despite being on the top of the hardness scale, she still feels inferior to Bort and has already been trying to change herself to close the gap between them. It's not enough though, as we see in the first of the two fights with the Lunarians this time, and she states her lack of confidence and her desire to change outright. Bort also has some goal, although I'm not sure what it is right now. I'll talk a little more about this in characterization, but Bort's motivation for the way he is acting and the way he treats Daya is unknown to me at this point. I can think of more than one reason for her behavior, and the actual motivation for it will be what determines what her goal is. Since I don't know that, I don't know what this goal is, but it's clear she has one. Conflicts today have a very similar pattern to goal, where we had a couple of advancements and a couple of new ones introduced. I said last time we would likely have new conflicts introduced and have some of our existing ones escalated, and the most obvious thing is the escalation of the peril that the Lunarians pose to all of our gems. We saw Bort effortlessly mow through two groups of Lunarians in this episode, and yet she was stymied by the snail there at the end. Regardless if or how the Lunarians' goals have changed, the snail definitely presents a new escalation of threat to our gems. Next conflict I still have up here is Congo's Age. I brought up that that was mentioned in passing last time, and it might come back into play. This time we learn that he occasionally goes through long meditations where he cannot be roused. Now these may be completely unrelated, we don't have actually enough information to know, but the actual end result is the same. He is unavailable when crisis presents itself. In the case of his meditation, this unavailability appears to at least be temporary, but it does still take what is essentially a trump card out of their arsenal for dealing with the Lunarians. I may end up rewriting this conflict or separating them out. It would not surprise me if his need to meditate or rest like he does is related to his age. But for right now, with our lack of information, I'm going to keep them together since they kind of serve the same purpose in the story. As far as additions to our conflicts, uh, Fos done got it, y'all. It's hard yet to say what that will mean, whether or not they can be reconstructed if they're dissolved all the way down the way she seems to be, but this particular conflict is absolutely going to be the thing that drives the story in the immediate future. It's so definitely a crisis for everyone involved. In the background of that, and a much bigger focus in this episode, is whatever squabble is going on between Daya and Bort. We'll explore that a little bit more when we talk about their characters. It's clearly a tension that is not new, and it might have some immediate and dire consequences thanks to the escalation of conflict we have thanks to the giant snail. Moving on into characterizations, we get a little bit more time with a couple of characters who have shown up before, but we didn't really get to know them at all. Jade and Euclase. Now Jade is referred to by some of the other gems as Speaker. It strikes me that her role in this community may be to take over the day-to-day -day administrative things to free up Master Congo from not having to do any of that. And she seems like a natural fit. She appears pragmatic and responsible. She seems to take things very seriously, which I think makes her very easy to wind up and troll basically from the other characters. The way she gives assent to Master Congo reminds me very much of a military subordinate. She strikes me as the kind of person who favors usefulness, likes the status quo, likes things to have a place and make sense. I think it makes sense that someone like Fos would uh, kind of wind her up and be someone she doesn't quite know how to deal with. I think Euclase and her are kind of paired together. They have a little bit of a dynamic that reminds me of Morga and Gauthier, with Morga being like Jade and Gauthier being like Euclase. Similar to Gauthier, Euclase seems to know how to disarm Fos, seems to take a different kind of understanding, friendly track with her. I think these two together are probably much more of the administrator type in this society. Fos at one point is sort of dismissive of Jade because of her lack of combat ability, though I'm sure she is more capable than Fos herself. Interestingly enough, with regard to our Moe's hardness thing, Jade says that she is the second hardest one around, I guess keeping the diamonds as the hardest, but that's actually not true of Jade in reality. While it's not a huge difference, all of our barrels, Morganite, Goshenite, Heliodor, and even Euclase here 
are all higher on the Moe's scale than Jade, so I'm not really sure what's going on there. Sophos is definitely our main character, and we're still following her around. We get to see a lot of the ways that she is the same as she was last episode, but also a few ways that she seems to be changing. She is someone who is still a little bit klutzy, a little bit helpless. She is at least very much aware of this. She is still a bit of a brat, the same way she antagonized Morga and Rutil last time. She antagonizes Jade and Daya this time. She still idolizes and is very impressed by combat ability. She idolizes combat ability so much that she falsely assumes that being good at that means you might be good at everything else, which is the whole reason she travels out to bother Daya about finding ideas for ideas in the first place. That behavior is very consistent with what she was doing last episode, where she walked around trying to let others help her figure out what her great discovery should be, instead of doing any of that work herself. That all said, we do see her change in some significant ways. Even though she walks around trying to get everyone else to help her come up with ideas, she doesn't tell any of them what she needs these ideas for. Now, Fos doesn't strike me as the type of person to have much of a filter, doesn't keep anything inside, but when it comes to talking about Cinnabar and her plight and her own efforts to fix that, mum's the word. She won't tell anyone what it is that she's working on. Now, while this could be because she'd be embarrassed by it, that the idea that she has this grand lofty goal that other people couldn't figure out, Part of me thinks it might be out of some sort of respect towards Cinnabar, like this is some sort of private, deeply personal matter, and she doesn't feel comfortable bringing anyone else into the fold. I don't have anything that specifically makes me feel that way, it's just kind of a sense I get of how Fos is changing, or how Fos may respect someone else's personal struggle. Assuming we ever get Fos back in a manner that can speak, it'll be interesting to see if she mentions Diamond's internal conflict to anyone else. That would certainly tell us if that is in fact what's going on here. So there's also a very small part, after Rutile has been tormenting Jade with the durability test, where Fos sticks her arm out, volunteering herself to be the next one Rutile tests. Now she certainly doesn't do this happily, in fact she seems a little bit apprehensive, but she doesn't have to be asked or cajoled. This in spite of just watching how much discomfort Jade went through. Ultimately, Rutile doesn't need to test her. The whole thing might in fact have been an attempt to troll both of them. But the point is, Fos had no problem subjecting herself to that. She wasn't gonna be a brat or try to put it off. She was ready to take her lumps to take her medicine. Small thing, but I wanted to mention it. Finally, and I kind of mentioned this in goals already, her very last fleeting thoughts as she's being dissolved, broken apart, whatever's happening at the end, her final thoughts are of Cinnabar. She's pleading in her mind for help, but it doesn't seem she wants to be helped for her own sake, she wants to be helped because somehow in her mind, she's convinced herself that she's the only hope for Cinnabar. That is to say, her crisis in that moment is not about her, it's about someone else. This seems like a real departure in her character from the person we met way back at the beginning of episode one. Now we only have a little brief interaction with Rutile. She still has that kind of scholar, healer, scientist thing going on. We do get to see that she's snarky, not just with Fos, but kind of with everybody. I think she actually kind of delighted in treating Jade the way she treated her. I think Rutile will be the kind of person who is serious whenever the matter itself is serious, but otherwise she kind of cuts loose. Finally, we have two characters whose conflict seems to be the focus of this episode. Daya and Bort are our diamond class gems. The two of them are set up as opposites in a lot of ways. Now, first of all, I want to talk about what diamonds and Borts are in the real world. Diamonds are basically a certain way that carbon can arrange itself, and one of the ways such diamonds can turn out is the clear, pretty, gem-like thing that we associate with the word diamond. Bort, on the other hand, are diamonds, but not gem-grade diamonds. They might be dark, they might be irregular, they're mostly used for industrial applications, because diamond is the hardest substance. 
In other words, in the real world, Bort is the very useful industrial application put to work, but not very pretty form of diamond. Whereas diamonds, the way we think of them, are adornments. They're pretty, they're gemstones, their sole function most of the time is to look nice. Now take all that knowledge and look at our two characters, and uh, I don't think there's any coincidence in the way they turned out. Daya and Bort seem to be simply set up as opposites. Daya is superlatively beautiful. Fos even comments that her mere existence is blinding. Meanwhile, Bort is rather plain. In fact, Bort's the closest thing to an androgynous design we've gotten this entire time. Daya, on the other hand, is almost lavishly feminine. Huge eyes, huge irises, long eyelashes. She's got a cutesy and sweet voice compared to Bort's rather harsh and a little bit grating voice. Daya's very passive, Bort's very aggressive. Bort is basically monochrome, while Daya is a whole rainbow of colors. They even both wear long stockings and long gloves, except Daya wears white and Bort wears black. Now individually, they have some other things going on. Daya, I don't think, has a reputation for being very bright. When Jade and Fos are talking about how she's come up with a new fighting technique, it's remarked that they're surprised she could come up with something like that on her own. Daya is meant to come off as very sweet, very accommodating, even though it's not really possible for her to help Fos, considering Fos didn't really give her enough information to be helpful. Daya is still apologetic and tries to mollify Fos when she has a little bit of a pouting session, despite it being her fault. Daya is also fairly selfless. When Fos surprises her and jumps at her in the grass, Daya's first thought is, you might have gotten hurt not the way she was inconvenienced. She also, when she realizes she's going to lose the fight with the Lunarians, attempts to throw Fos away to safety, leaving herself as the prime target for them to concentrate on. Daya even smiles the whole time she is fighting. However, all's not well in Dyoville because she feels very inadequate and useless compared to Bort. She has a bit of a trying dichotomy here. She's very admiring and envious of Bort's abilities, and all it seems to do for her is reinforce her own inadequacy in this regard. She knows that she's hardness level 10. She knows she's supposed to be at the top. She doesn't feel that way. She feels like she's no use at all. She says a weak diamond is really no diamond at all, and that Bort is really the only true diamond. Now I'm sure that regardless of Bort's abilities and hardness and durability, I'm sure Daya's probably still way up there compared to everyone else too. But she's having this very pronounced self-crisis, and it's obviously caused a lot of friction between her and Bort. Even though she clearly admires and even says she loves Bort, in fact, she's all aglow when Bort shows up to save the day. It's very much a hero moment there, and she's very much the rescued damsel in distress. Now, she is actively trying to improve her situation. She's out there trying out a new fighting technique to try to make herself feel more useful, to feel like she might be at least a little bit on level with Bort. Whether that decision is ultimately wise or not, it's a mark in her favor that she is trying to change. And one of the bits of advice she gives Fos for herself is to try changing from within, to try doing things that she hasn't done before. There is, however, a slightly ominous bit to all this, where Bort has just defeated the Lunarians the first time and is coming back, and Daya is expressing all of her doubts and her misgivings, and she confesses that she occasionally has this thought that if it wasn't for Bort, then we see her eyes reflected in her sword. And that whole thing is kind of ominous. Now, Daya doesn't seem malicious or like she's scheming necessarily, but you can tell Fos is a little bit surprised at this. But Fos is immediately able to relate to this, compares it in her mind with her own situation with Cinnabar. We'll talk a little bit more about that in theme. So then to talk a little bit more about Bort, I find Bort to be fascinating, actually. I told you I don't know what it is that she wants exactly. She seems to be very protective of Daya, and that protection has perhaps gone overboard. There does seem to be a real attempt to deny Daya her own agency. 
the real head scratcher at this point in time is why that may be. Does Bort love and admire Daya so much she's not willing to risk any harm coming to her? Is that why she fights so much that she tries to keep Daya from getting involved at all? Or is it possible that her exclusion is actually meant in a more hostile manner? Let me point something out to help clarify that. When the second Lunarians show up and they ignore Bort and Daya and Fos and head right for the main building, Bort comments on the fact that they're being ignored even though Fos and Daya are right there. In other words, she knows that Daya and Fos are desirable to the Lunarians and it seems very unusual that they would pass them by. But what's unsaid there is that they wouldn't stop if it was just Bort. Bort's not desirable to them. Bort's not pretty and gem-like and would make a good trophy. I suspect Bort is very aware that she is not at all pretty like Daya is. I mean, Daya is extremely, extremely beautiful and Bort is the plainest thing we've seen so far. Take that difference between them and add enough time and Bort might have felt that she needed to differentiate herself. She can't be more beautiful, but maybe she can be way better fighter, way better protector. Superlative in all ways that comes to combat in the same way that Daya is superlative in all ways that comes to beauty and femininity. In other words, in the same way that Daya both admires and is envious of Bort, Bort might feel the same way about Daya. And both of them might have been building up some resentment all this time that has just only recently kind of boiled over. That's what I mean when I say I don't know why Bort's so protective. Is it out of admiration? Is it out of desire to protect? Or is it more antagonistic? Or does she know that this makes Daya feel useless and is her own petty way of getting back at her for being so much more beautiful, so much more desirable? I don't know yet. That's why Bort's goal is unknown. It's why Bort fascinates me so much. I do think Bort is very concerned with utility, the usefulness of something, whether that's because of her innate qualities or they have simply turned her into that, I don't know. But it's no surprise at all that she is so dismissive of Fos. Fos seems useless to her, therefore Fos is useless. It may be that she's starting to feel the same way towards Daya, which might inform their current conflict. Now onto world building. This whole episode opens with this prologue that I've mentioned already. It's done in a very kind of fairy tale mythology style. I've mentioned before in the past episode how much the Lunarians remind me of something out of mythology, some sort of celestial being kind of thing. And this opening gives me the same kind of feeling. Now I'm going to put all the words to that prologue up here where we can all look at them. And I gotta say this tells us some things and I feel like it leaves some important things out. Starts with this bit about six shooting stars and six fractured moons and resolves into an image of the landmass being distorted and it matches the first kind of overhead view we have of the island where all the gems live. My immediate follow-up question to this is, there's six moons? We've only ever seen the one in the sky so far. They only ever seem to refer to the moon that the Lunarians come from. So some part of me wonders exactly what that means. Does it actually mean there are six moons? Either way, I think we're meant to gather that some sort of cataclysmic event happened in the past, which has resulted in the world being the way it is now. Now it says nearly all life fled for the sea and on the empty shores appeared a life form that was suited to sort of the barren world that was left after this cataclysm. It goes on to talk about how the gems came to be, but my question is, what is that life form? What is the thing suited to life on the barren shores? I have no real reason to believe this, but part of me wonders if that's not what Congo is. 
I mean, the way this little story goes, it sounds like there's only whatever that species was, whatever lives in the sea, and the gems. But clearly that's not true. There's all kinds of plants and animals on this little landmass with them. So why single out the one life form that can survive in the barren lands? I mean, it immediately mentions among the prospering life forms. So you know more than one thing survived. So why the singling out? We then get to see that apparently all the life that didn't survive sunk to the bottom and was reconstituted by whatever lives down there into the gems as we know them over a huge stretch of time. I suspect this means that the gem girls didn't all come up together or not all born together. Either way, we at least start to have some sense of the origin story to this whole situation. I said last time we need to start paying attention to find out what the deal is with this world, how it came to be, how a species or whatever they are that only has 28 members could be. And these are the first real steps towards that. It's definitely not a complete picture, like not close at all. And it may even be that this ends up being a little more fanciful. It is kind of told in a storybook fashion, like I mentioned. But I do think it suggests that we will eventually learn all this information that it won't be some mystery that never has any light shed on it. Speaking of this prologue, as well as several elements I've noticed in the series itself, why are there so many invertebrates? Like has all life stepped back to that stage? Is that the idea? You'll see what I mean. Look in the design of the actual prologue art. You see sort of a squid and snail looking thing going on there in the side. And then we see early on that Fos is looking at jellyfish in the water, or at least that's what they think she's doing. And then at the end of the episode, of course, the gigantic snail shows up. And on top of all that, you notice that some of the girl's hair seems very jellyfish or squid-like in appearance. Bort's hair looks a lot like a mini tentacled octopus or something similar. Morga's hair has always struck me as looking very kind of like fat tentacles. And even Fosa's hair will sometimes look a little bit like a jellyfish, depending on how the wind is blowing through it. Not yet sure what all this means, but clearly invertebrates are all over the place and can grow to be quite huge as we see at the end. Whatever Congo's meditation is, he can't be roused from it. We learned that in kind of hilarious manner from Jade, and it has already helped to cause one of our conflicts to be more severe than it might otherwise have been. I will suspect we will learn more about his meditation in uh, future episodes. When Rutil comes and bangs on Jade, again in kind of hilarious fashion, she explains that it's part of their 100 year durability test. Now they don't give us much more to go on than this, but clearly the gems are very long lived. Clearly a lot of time has passed for them to have something like a 100 year repeating test standard. Now the episode's really using humor to cover over the fact that they're going to expo speak to us, but Rutil immediately goes into talking about that there's a difference between durability and hardness. As to say that their Mohs scale rating is not all there is to say about their physical structure. Now what this whole talk is setting us up for is the Bort-Dia dynamic that will show up later on. So it's really just a way of letting us know that before it becomes important to the story. But it's good information. I'm glad they did it in such a way. I'm glad we understand now why there's a difference between two level 10 hardness gems, Bort and Dia. After Bort defeats the Lunarians the second time, the snail doesn't disappear. And it's commented on that it must not be from the moon since it didn't. Now we don't yet know what's going on with the Lunarians. I think that's going to be teased out. But clearly whenever it is they lose, everything that they brought with them, everything about them vanishes. The fact that the snail is not from the moon is just a foregone conclusion. It's still here. It's not from the moon. So obviously that's how it always works. It seemed to be the case already, but this time we got to see for sure that defeating the larger Lunarian, the larger being or whatever these things are, that seems to be the key to making all of them vanish. 
Obviously cutting them in half, covering them with mercury, whatever, will do the trick. But you can see in one of these fights where ones on the back are actually kind of propping it up as it starts to fall backwards, trying to keep themselves in this plane on Earth or wherever they are a little bit longer. The gems float, or at least some of them do. Bort and Daya at least seem to be able to walk along the top of the water. Not sure yet if that applies to everyone, but I think it would make sense that it does, considering they apparently all came from the bottom of the ocean, and I guess they would have trouble getting to the surface if they didn't float. I would like to point out, in the real world, uh, diamonds don't float. They sink. Lastly, whatever's going on with our giant snail allows it to dissolve or melt the gems. The girls are not sure if it's heat or acid, but it definitely very quickly breaks down their structure, unfortunately for Fos. To move to our last board item, theme, I've written the ones we talked about last time up here, and added a couple more as well. Now not all the ones from last time get a lot of appearance here, uh, some kinda not at all really, but I do want to just keep adding to this list as we go along, and then eventually we'll consolidate if we need to. A few of these I think will almost certainly get more treatment in the next episode, as the little community has to deal with the snail and the fact of Fos being dissolved or whatever's going on there. And our very first theme up is one that I do think will get more work next time, which is the individual versus the society. The only real thing I want to say, as far as that theme goes for this episode, is that I think some of our newer characters, Jade and Bort especially, probably come down on the side of society, as far as that question goes. I would guess that Euclaze is that way as well, but we don't actually know enough about her yet. Where Daya fits into that is something I don't actually quite know yet. She's obviously having a personal crisis of her own, but it seems to be mostly internal, or at least just personified by Bort. She seems at least a little willing to go along with what's best, rather than what she wants. But we clearly haven't seen the end of their little conflict, so it's hard yet to say how that theme applies to the two of them and their dynamic. Salvation from unlikely sources didn't get anything this time. Actually kind of got the reverse of that. Lack of salvation from likely sources. You think Daya is going to be able to take care of the Lunarians no problem, and she needs to be bailed out. This one I suspect will get more play next time as well, because however it is they solve the new conflict of the snail is probably not something very obvious. Innate value versus your purpose definitely gets some play here. The characters of Bort and Daya, or specifically their conflict, is kind of the embodiment of this idea. Daya thinks she should be just as superlative a fighter as Bort, since they're both Hardness 10, they're both diamonds. The fact that she's not has totally interfered with her sense of purpose. It's totally interfered with her self-identity. It's totally made her question her own innate value. This is a very interesting twist on the idea compared to what we had last time. And I said then that we probably would see the strongest be very weak, just like we saw the weakest, Cinnabar, be very strong. Now Daya is not the strongest strongest, it turns out that's Bort, but she is certainly perceived as being way above everyone else. So for her to have these shortcomings and this own self-doubt definitely plays into this theme. And it plays into the next one, the existential crisis, because again, her sense of purpose has been taken from her and her sense of identity with it. And so now she's having all kinds of thoughts which are probably new and a little bit alien to her. In what we take for granted, Fos obviously took for granted that Daya being a 10 meant that she would be superlative in combat. That turns out not to be the case. The gems, as I mentioned last time, take for granted that Master Kongo will always be there to bail them out. That turned out not to be the case. We currently are taking for granted that Bort can take care of the Lunarians whenever they show up. Even Jade, the self-proclaimed second hardest around here, suddenly doesn't worry about the fact of the Lunarians' presence once Bort arrives. So the fact that everyone believes Bort can take care of everything may not be the case. 
We don't know for sure yet, but it's clear Bort's usual way of dealing with things was not very effective with the snail at the end. It may not be very effective in the next episode either. Finally, I've added new things up here. The first one I'm simply calling metamorphosis. Now, I don't mean this necessarily as just a fancy word for change. If you remember last time, I pointed out the butterfly that shows up with Cinnabar and with Fos, at two different points with two different results. And I mentioned that the butterfly is an age-old symbol for change because it metamorphosizes from the caterpillar into the butterfly, into what seem to be two totally different things. Change and the concept of change by itself is too broad a concept to really be a theme. I mean, every story involves change. Any character that's interesting changes. Pointing out that things changing as a theme is definitely some Captain Obvious defender of the already known territory. Why I'm choosing the word metamorphosis is not just to change the gradual kind of evolving into something else. I mean, that's clearly a motif already with the whole prologue. But I mean metamorphosis in literally changing from one thing into another thing, okay? Daya talks about how much she wants to change, that she's the one that needs to change, that she has lots of shortcomings, but the thing she wants to change into, which is a better fighter so that she can help Bort or doesn't have to be protected by her, seems to be something she cannot physically do the way she is now. To get to that point, she may need to be something else entirely, or at the very least, a different role entirely. Cinnabar has the same problem. A fundamental aspect of who and what she is causes her problems. The problems may not be resolvable through simple little steps. They may need some wholesale change in who they are or what they do to get past their own personal issues. Fos, the person who's already changed the most, is literally physically changing before our eyes. But the result of that will be, I don't know, but clearly evolution and changing what you are, evolving your purpose versus what you innately are capable of, are themes already in this work. And I think going ahead and putting a term to it, that drastic change is something a lot of characters are going to go through, will help us understand things. It'll help us to expect more changes in the future, more wholesale changing from one thing into another, because I suspect this world is about to be upset a lot. I mentioned last time and reminded you at the beginning of this episode that the status quo is going to be in immediate peril. I think the snail is just the beginning of things. I think this whole society is going to metamorphose into something else. But that's a little more speculation than theme. We'll look at that in further episodes from now. I just want to go ahead and point out that I think this kind of huge change is going to be a theme going forward. Finally, I've also added the idea of pairs and opposition. Slightly different connotation than opposing pairs. We have a couple of character pairings already that seem to put different personalities together. Morga and Gaucher from last time, and now Jade and Euclase from this time. But those pairs are a little bit more about being foils, about being good character balance for each other. Bort and Daya seem to be really, truly opposing pairs. But I suspect we'll find that this kind of opposition and pairing is not limited only to characters. I think opposing ideas might start showing up in our series as well. For example, we have this whole bit where Daya and Fos are talking about Bort, and what Daya is mentioning makes Fos think of the concept of can't live with him, can't live without him, and immediately thinks of Cinnabar. Daya jumps on this idea, wishes they had a term for it, because then she feels like she wouldn't have to worry about it as much. I think the society has a similar opposing set of ideas. There will probably be more, but the big one for me is that they seem to be unchanging immortals, right? They can always be put back together, and yet so many of them personally want to change. They want to change who they are, they want to change what their role in society is, they want to change the lot given to them. So you have this idea of these hard, rigid, crystal-structured beings who can always be put back together, whose memories are actually tied to the fact that they're being whole, and so many of them want to somehow be a different thing. 
I'm not saying they don't want to be immortal, I'm not saying they don't want to be able to be put back together, I guess with the exception of Cinnabar, but so many of them seem to want to change, which seems to be the thing they're not very capable of doing. That's really just the first look at that idea. We're gonna see if this becomes a theme going forward. For now, I wanna bring it up, cite the first example I see, and see where we can go from here. Now to move on to what to watch for. This is the things we're gonna be looking for in the next episode, and some things we'll be looking out for in all episodes to come. We talked about this episode about the difference between hardness and durability, and while that sets up the die-abort dynamic pretty well, I think we should be watching for that to come back into play in some other way. Somewhat related, I want to know, what are these swords made out of? Like, Daya's arm gave out before her sword gave out, but the swords seem just as affected by the snail's corrosive or melting qualities as the gems themselves were. Can the Lunarians see what's going on on the island? Last episode, they had apparently never been showing up at that cape when uh, Cinnabar was there, but she points out that the minute Fos is there, suddenly they show up. This time, they show up with sort of a new tactic, go immediately to the main building, and do all that while Master Kongo is asleep, meditating. So, can they see what's going on? Do they have some sort of spy or technology or power that lets them peer into the goings-on of the island? I mean, obviously something's going on with their whole portals and the way they vanish, but those activities don't seem to be just coincidence. If they are just coincidence, that's kind of lame. So I'm waiting to see how it is they know what's going on here. Speaking of the Lunarians, what is going on in these attacks? Like, are these actual individual beings and they have like a larger queen bee version of themselves? When they vanish or they're being attacked, are they actually dying? Are these some sort of astral projections of themselves or some other spiritual version? Well, I bring this up because if they're actually dying, would you really send dozens of people for the chance at getting some pretty jewels? Like, what kind of society is that? I don't feel like that seems very likely, and the fact that they completely vanish without leaving any kind of physical trace makes me think something else is going on. Those two things together are, to me, some of the biggest mysteries we have right now, and not understanding them makes it a little bit harder to understand the peril the girls are in, the future of where this whole island, kingdom, community can even go, and what kind of end might be in sight for any of our larger conflicts or goals. Those thoughts led me to another thought, which I mentioned already, but is it possible we have the wrong idea about the Lunarians? Is it possible their goal is not kidnapping exactly, but maybe even something altruistic? Some larger purpose? Are they just amoral pursuers of science or prettiness or whatever? Is it just about material gain? Do they see the gems as life forms at all? It may be these questions are never dealt with. It may be the series wants the Lunarians to be this kind of unconscious force of nature, nothing you can actually deal with or reason with, and that'd be okay too. I'm just curious about it. It's the kind of thing I'm definitely watching very closely to get any kind of hint about why they're doing the things they do, because I don't want to just take the character's word for it, you know? Now, why don't I want to take characters' words for things? Well, now that we've had this prologue that seems to indicate that some sort of huge cataclysm had in the past, I suddenly have a lot of questions about society. For example, why do they even have a concept of what an encyclopedia is? Or clothing? Or sword fighting? Or architecture? Or hairstyles? Why do they know any of that? Why do they think any of that? Why can they read or write? What language is that? Where did it come from? Did they create it themselves? Did they figure all this out from scratch? Have they really been here that long? I think I would be kind of disappointed if none of that actually gets answered, because if they really have figured all this out from scratch, there should be records, there should be lots of things written down. Like surely this hasn't been trial and error forever, and they just rely on having a perfect memory, which I don't even know if they have, to keep it all straight. I mean, the idea of encyclopedia is a new idea to them for the society. So where's all this information been coming from? 
about what Rutile does, about the structure of gems, about all the things they've built or sewn or whatever, if this is a cataclysm world where they're not the survivors but something that evolved out of it, where did this information come from? Finally, and the thing we're going to be watching for next episode is how the society reacts to Fos's predicament. I don't know if this giant snail will be a threat to anyone else or to everyone else, but I want to see how the society reacts to the fact of Fos being in there. Do they rally around the external threat, regardless of how they feel about Fos? Are some scared for their lives, but to put themselves in harm's way because of her? Or does she not factor into their decision-making at all? Crisis in the real world often tells you what you're made of, and I suspect we will find out a lot about the society in this next episode based on their response to this new, huge conflict. Lastly, to speculation, I actually have very little here. The way this ended, the way we have this whole new development and kind of abruptly cut off, kind of breaks my line of speculating for some things. I do have some guesses about some things from earlier in the episode. I suspect that Bort will end up having some sort of insecurity or some sort of internal conflict of her own. She seems like she might be a little intractable, but maybe we'll find this out over the course of the crisis that's coming. But I ultimately don't think that the way she behaves is coming out of nowhere. Considering how many other internal crises are going on, I don't think there's any reason she should be the exception, especially based on the way she's acting towards Daya. Um, I speculated last time that the status quo was in peril, and I think this is just the beginning of it. I think things are definitely going to change a lot. I mentioned that in the metamorphosis theme, but it's not just because of that. I think a lot of things have been boiling under the surface for some time. I don't think the gems know everything they need to know. And I think the change in tactics from the Lunarians signals really big things to come. I don't have any exact speculation on what that is yet because of the way we cut off there, and there's too many things I still don't know, but we're not going to resolve the snail crisis and go back to where we were at the beginning of episode one. That's not going to happen. Um, I danced around this idea earlier when talking about conflicts, but Congo's whole meditation thing, I suspect will end up being actually some kind of hibernation or some kind of other restorative thing he has to do. I'm thinking that because if it's really something he can't be roused from, and if the Lunarians never show up at night, why isn't he just doing this all night? Like, is this really meditation I'm going to go into and be completely unreachable during the crisis part of the day when one of my main goals is to protect everybody? Those two ideas seem at odds with each other, and Fos even jokes that he's taking a nap. So I'm speculating that the meditation thing is not something he's doing for, you know, inner enlightenment, but something that he has to do. And it may be related to his age, it may be related to something else fundamental about him, but I suspect it's something he's ultimately not doing because he wants to, but because he has to. Whatever that means. As far as speculation about what's about to happen to Fos, I don't know. She's clearly the main character, so this is not the end of her. We have the butterfly metaphor already, so I suspect the most likely outcome is that she survives, but is different in some fundamental way after this. And I also suspect that our whole conversation about the difference between hardness and durability might be something that comes into play here. But there's also so many things about the way this world works that we don't know yet that'd be pretty easy to be wrong. So that's all for this episode. Let's go to the next one and see how wrong I am. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearly on red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.